Hello and welcome back to Cronscast, the official podcast of SFF Chronicles, the world's largest science fiction and fantasy community. I am Dan Jones. And I'm Christopher Bean. Today we have a very special guest. When Dan and I discussed setting up the podcast two years ago, one of my conditions was that we try to get today's guest on. I discovered John Langan when I was sent a copy of his book, The Fisherman, from a publisher. It's a rewarding, heartbreaking, exciting and terrifying read that I've read uh, once a year along with The Elementals. Since then, I've picked up all his work that's available in the UK. And as far as this genre fan's concerned, he's up in top place with Thomas Ligotti as my favourite author. Am I gushing? Well, get used to it. Today, we won't be focusing on one particular book. He might be all talked out when it comes to The Fisherman, which has just had its UK release. But he has many novellas and short stories, which I hope pop up in our chats today. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me and for such a gracious introduction, which I am absolutely sure there is no way I can live up to. So uh, if I could speak to the audience directly, I'd like to advise you to lower your expectations and everything will be fine. It's it's almost as though it doesn't really matter because only Bean's expectations matter this episode. So I'm sure you will exceed everything. No, no, I, I, would, advise, I would advise him especially to lower his expectations. <laughs> No, I mean, we've done quite a lot of science fiction and fantasy episodes, um, and I'm not really into, I mean, I know there's crossovers in genres, but I'm not really into fantasy, and a lot of the time I'm just silent on podcasts. Well, we do have we do have our co-host, uh, Pete, now, who, who sort of steps in when we do more of the fantasy stuff. I mean, th- yeah, I can see why you say uh, Bean might be disappointed, because there is the possibility that we might stumble onto things like uh, Robert E. Howard and uh, Fritz Leiber and things like that. But Absolutely. we'll try not to. At least we won't start off with that. We won't well, I've just reread Smoke Ghost, mentioning um, Fritz Leiber. It's my favourite Fritz Leiber. So I was, you know, when you're a little bit too tired to read a new, you know, a new story or something, you just go to your comfort. And it's on my Kindle, so I had a had a read of Smoke Ghost as well. It's um, a terrific story. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good story. I mean, honestly, I'm going to have a trouble keeping a train of thought because there are so many things that I, you know want to talk about um i think to keep it general to start off with though i think at the moment we seem to be or well for quite a while now um we've been in this um sort of golden age of horror and weird fiction and um and i wondered if you had any i think on, on, on as well writers of that genre are so supportive uh, of each other and, you know, uh, helping people up the ladders and all those kind of things. So aside from that, what is it that might have, what do you think might be the reason? Why is it just a typical cycle? Why is it that horror and weird, weird fiction have become so important recently? I, I agree with, with the observation. I think that there are more great writers at work right now um, that maybe at any point in the in the field's history, uh, certainly um, I, I think then then in its recent history, uh, you can uh, uh, <laughs> you can't throw a rock without hitting a great horror writer these days. Uh, and there are, um, I, I mean, I mean, like I think to myself, oh, I could just start making lists of of names, but but maybe maybe we'll hold off that for just uh, for just a second. I think the 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 more general phenomenon owes itself to a, a couple of different things. I, I think that that some of it is just the sort of, uh, of age, you know, that 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 um, a number of us are roughly the same age. Myself, Laird Barron, Paul Tremblay, uh, Gary McMahon, uh, Adam Neville, 
um, Olivia Llewellyn, Nadia Balkan, Alison Littlewood. Uh, we're we're all in that late forties, early fifties. Uh, well, Nadia is younger, but uh, we're we're all in that sort of roughly the same age. I, I think we all started writing, uh, you know, late nineties, early early aughts. We were all uh, raised to a certain extent on um, on Stephen King, on Peter Straub, uh, on James Herbert on Ramsey Campbell, uh, and, and a lot of other, a lot of other writers that we associate with the, with the seventies and the eighties. And also uh, on the, on a lot of, uh, horror media, horror film, I, I think, uh, especially, um, we all, uh, we all grew up with the, with the exorcist, with, uh, with the shining, with these, these films that, um, in, in, in many cases, in those two cases, you know, had a tremendous amount of, of sort of artistic or however we want to, you know, call that cachet as as well as as horror fan, you know, sort of cult cachet. So we we all grew up with those things. Um and we all uh brought we we that was where our our I don't know, that was where our literary aspirations took us. Uh I I think um I, I think very few people write horror as it were by choice. You know, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars and write a horror story. You know, they, uh, uh, except for Thomas Ligotti, of course, who's notorious for that. But, um, look, <laughs> <laughs> down at the racetrack. Um, he, he uh, um, but I, I think that we, um, we just all, when we, we started writing, that was what we were drawn to. And I, I think that we were, we benefited from the small press also from what you've seen over the last 20 years is a really profound growth in the, in the small press in part facilitated by the, the internet, the, the, the explosion of the internet of print on the, the, the improvement of print on demand technology. I think that, um, and, and now, you know, online publishing is as well venues such as, uh, you know, Nightmare Magazine or The Dark or, or, or something like that. These places where, um, and actually, even before that, when I was starting out, sci fiction uh, was that was the holy grail. They were uh, not to be crass, but they were paying twenty five was it twenty five cents a word, I think, or some with some obscene amount of money for which is, of course, what everybody should be getting paid. But that's another story, anyway. Um, and I I think um, at at that point for us. Uh, and I'm, you know, maybe unfairly uh, uh, speaking for for a, a generation of writers, um, and and you know, maybe that's a little presumptuous of me, but I, I feel that what we had at that point was we had the examples of King and Straub and Campbell, in in particular, these writers who had been they had a, a solid established body of work, and you could look at that. And you could see all the different possibilities available to you as a writer uh, of, 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 of weird fiction, of, of horror fiction. I mean, you had, you had Ligotti also th throughout, you know, publishing in very small presses throughout the 80s. And then, and then coming on more uh, in the 90s, there were a couple of Carolyn Graff editions of, of his books that, that made him more accessible. And, and I, um, I, I think that with Ligotti, you know, what you could be impressed with with Ligotti was that the sort of insane integrity of what he was doing, that, that Ligotti took, he took what he was doing with utter seriousness. He had no, no qualifications, no, uh, I know this isn't really literary. No, this was uh, 
just just absolutely what he was he was supposed to be doing and and i think that that was if if not um in terms of actual content matter but in, in terms of attitude that was that was tremendously inspiring um and look i, I mean ramsey campbell has done the same thing so i i mean it's it's not to to say oh it was only legati but i think ramsey at least has had uh, at different points in his career you know, a, a certain amount of of, um, of publishing success, you know, relative to, to Ligotti, say. Ligotti was just doing it. He was just doing it to do it, and it didn't matter what he was, um, what, what you know, what amount of money he was making or, or, or whatever. He was just... Um, he, he was just following this this kind of career this this the, his, the, no, not career following this sort of north star of his of his particular dark imagination maybe I should say a dark star but how would you follow a dark star so I, I think um, I, I think that that was was also that was also in there and what you've seen I I think is that the horror community has has certainly in my experience of it you know which is you know 20 plus years now has been very very warm and very opening and has become more so over time which is really heartening i have to be honest uh because it could it could go the other way you know it it, it but by and large it's um and, and and some of that i i think has to do with um i, I can remember going to a reader con which was a local convention in massachusetts and uh you know, there was this small group of horror writers there. The sort of the science fiction and fantasy writers were all arguing with each other about, you know, which is the best genre, you know? And they were like, well, at least we're not like the horror weirdos in the corner, you know, sort of drooling and slavering, you know? And and so there was this kind of sense of, of, of solidarity, you know, that like even within the genre, we were, we weren't even the redheaded stepchild. I mean, you know, we were, I, I don't know what, you know, the thing that was kept locked up in the shed. And, um, I, I the Waitley, that, coming from the Waitley, Waitley family. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Grandpa Waitley. Um, <laughs> so we, um, we, we did feel that sense of, of we're all, we're all in this together. Um, and there have certainly been blowups in the horror community there. You know, there it's, it's a community that, that that's inevitable that this is going to happen. But I, I think that there was, um, Certainly in the in the U.S. and I, I have that sense in the U.K. Um, that that feeling of a kind of a, a, a genre solidarity or something like that. I, I think probably the the bigger divide at first was between U.S. and U.K. and U.S. and Canadian. I think that that is is gradually closing. Um, I, I think that there's um, I think that there's a, a lot more uh, transatlantic. Uh, uh, communication, I, I guess you would say. Um, I, uh, I used to teach a class called the Transatlantic Gothic, and that was one of the things we looked at was sort of 19th and 20th century examples of, of Gothic tropes flowing back and forth uh, across the ocean. And I think that that's going on, except it's it's going on now literally at light speed, you know, back and forth across, uh, across the internet. And I think that... Um, I, I don't think you, you're ever going to see a horror boom quite like what we saw in the eighties, you know, where, where, um, ridiculous well, it, it amounts the of mainstream, money. It was the mainstream thing, wasn't it? it was, yeah. And, and just, it was, it was, it was commerce, you know, it was, Oh my God, well, we're a million dollars here, a million dollars there. You know, that, that's, that's not going to, to happen. I don't think. 
When Bean and I started Cronscast, the fantasy, science fiction and horror podcast, we were flying by the seat of our pants. A friend suggested Zencaster and we've never looked back. We've used Zencaster for every episode of Cronscast and it's never let us down. The reason I love it is that even when we have connection problems, Zencaster records and backs up each audio track at source, meaning the audio signal is smooth and uninterrupted. When you're on a call with someone 3,000 miles away and in a different continent, that's the sort of reassurance you need. It's now super easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. Log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of Zen, knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Go to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code CRONSCAST and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Um, in in some ways, I, I, the I most eight, the most eighties thing that I remember. I, I, I was um, talking with um, constant reader podcast host, you know, Richard Shepard. We were talking about Christine, and yeah. this is my favourite story about the horror market of the eighties: is that King sold the movie rights before he'd actually published the novel. Do you know the funny thing is I was just on another podcast. Um, and, and that was the, it's, it's, it's a, a podcast which looks at, uh, uh, the horror, horror films of different years. And the, the, the film I chose to talk about was Christine because that was the book for me. That was Christine was the book. I read that my first year of, of high school and boom, that was what made yeah. me a horror writer. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, you, I, you I, know, that, that was the, there was the, I read that probably about 14, 15. And yes. it was like, that is the book when you're that age. You know, it's it's fast cars, sex, rock and roll music, and death. Well, and, and it was just like that. That's the package. It's it's yeah. I, I mean, the thing about Christine, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but um, the the thing about that book is that like I was reading it as a freshman in high school who felt emotionally on the same page as as Arnie Cunningham, even though I recognized that it was an exaggeration. I recognized that my own experience was not quite as extreme as, as his was. Uh, but anyway, the point is, um, yeah, the movie was, was released within eight to 10 months of the book's publication. And so it was obvious that, that they were filming it <laughs> before the book came out. And yeah, um, which is just crazy. And he sold it for mega bucks as well. Oh yeah. 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 Well, yeah, he, he wound up having producers. to, to pay a lot for the rights to use the song lyrics in the in the book. That's um, right. Yeah, he paid yeah. tens of thousands of out of his own pocket, as I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he was like, but what's fascinating in a way about him doing that was that there were that many songs for him to quote from. That that yeah. the automobile was such a part of, especially American rock and roll music, um, that that he could just run through all those songs and just kind of pillage them, you know, just, I mean, cause you think, Oh yeah, the beach boys or whatever, little deuce coop or something like that. And no, 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 that's just the tip of the iceberg. It just goes on and on and on and on. 
And you've got that really nice uh, change between a load, um, a load of things. Sorry, I, I, Sorry I, might, I think I might be behind you. I was just saying it about the score. You've got all those tracks, which, like, you know, going from Boney Maroney into John Carpenter's fantastic score. It's an amazing, yeah, yeah. you know, what you're listening to when you're watching Christine is conveys what you get in the book in a way that you can't do in prose just from the use of music, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I can't. I, I can't. I, um, oh, what would I? What I was thinking about with that, because with Carpenter's movies, I feel like you you have to be aware of the score, um, because you know that Carpenter himself is composing the score a, a lot of the time. And and what's yeah. so fascinating is, I had just this past summer, I had just shown my younger son uh, Carpenter's The Thing, so we went watch that. He loved it. Thank God. And, um, but we're listening to the music and that's, you know, heavy synthesizers, you know, but then when you get to Christine, a lot of the music is this kind of like big organ, you know, sort of operatic kind of thing. And I, I wondered, I, I honestly wondered to myself, did, did Carpenter choose that himself? Did the, did the studio choose that? You know, because it works, I think tremendously well with the film and with the emotion of the film, um, but I, I was like, man, that is so different from the rest of, of or what I associate with Carpenter, which which is that kind of synth heavy kind of, of stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it, but the, there are there are wonderful visuals in that in that movie. There were there were things I wish Carpenter had had maybe more of a budget to do. Um, I I think um, well, he he treated it just as just as a job. Yeah, as far as yeah, I yeah. recall, it wasn't a passion project. The studio roped him in to do it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it was a funny film. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he was. Well, he must have been invested to a certain degree because it's well, a lot of the film. budget went on the car because there were so few Plymouth Furies left. I remember mm, yeah. in the eighties reading it was Starburst or Gore Zone or Fangoria, one of those magazines that used to come out once a month, and it was, you know, all I don't know, I can't remember. I was too young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. Who, who it was interviewing or whatever, but they were saying it was so expensive to buy these cars, whether they were a wreck or whether they were in quite good condition, they were like, Oh, there's three in the country. There's three in the States, you know, and Isn't then that funny? Steve... because he, he picked the, he picked that car because it was so ubiquitous. It was, it was, it was just a, he said a kind of nothing kind of car. Now, of course yeah. the name, the fury, right. I, I mean, that obviously has a lot of, you know, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, you know, that he, he picked, he picked the right name of, of car, uh, for that, for that narrative. But yeah. it's just funny to think that that there's this point in time where Carpenter makes this movie um, because the thing has bombed <laughs> because, you yeah. know, the thing yeah. gets terrible reviews and people say, oh, who is, you know, he's such a hack, you know, and and this is when this guy is 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 in the middle of this great period of filmmaking, you know, starting with Assault on Precinct 13 and and going through Halloween and the fog. And, you know, he he's just um producing as great a body of work as any american filmmaker and yet at the time they're just like oh john you know can you do this stephen king thing because uh you know you're not cutting it it's 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 just sort of astonishing and maybe for artists maybe this should be hopeful i guess you know like 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 now we look at the thing and everybody but everybody agrees that it's one of the great horror movies of the of the last century and um and yet, at the time, well, you know, we we can swing that swing that back to what you were saying about Thomas Ligotti, you know, following yeah, yeah, his Dark yeah, yeah. Star. 
And I guess you follow it just I guess you follow a dark star if everything else is light. That's the way that he would probably see it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, he would. He would. <laughs> That's like left hand of darkness, isn't it? Anyway, forget that. Um, but it is it's the same if you're following your own, if you're plowing your own furrow you know, marching to the beat of your own drum. In in some respect, that's like the artistic ideal, isn't it? You're carving the way that you want to do it. And most of the time, most of us who have written something or produced something, you, you have to compromise at some point along the chain because you're dealing with a professional process. There are industrial realities. There are commercial considerations and all of this. And Thomas Lugotti, he's like, like you said, his stuff is so unique it's sort of outside it sits a little bit outside of that family tree of horror that you were talking about you know you could take a uh, a pencil and run a line through poe and mr james and then lovecraft and then howard and libert and then king and da, 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 da. but he kind of sits outside of that he i think he, i might be wrong in this i might be wrong but i think he's certainly one of the only living writers to have his work published as a penguin classic Yes. Yeah. As far as I know, he he's among that that select few. Yeah. Okay. So there is a, a select few. But yeah, he's um, he's a very strange character. Is Lagotti? Uh, you I mentioned Alison Littlewood as well. Uh, she was we, we had her on talking about Mr. James as well. A while. Oh, yeah, back. she's terrific. She's she's great. I think I want to say she has a new collection of stories coming out from Black Shuck Books. I think. Yeah, she mentioned it, and now that's terrible because I can't remember the name. Well, of it was Christmas when we did that interview, wasn't it? It was Christmas, yeah, mm. when we spoke with her. But yeah, um, no, there's this, and she's somebody else. You know, there, there, there's just there's such a there's such a wealth of talent now, and and I think that one of um, I think that, that like Black Shock's a good example of that. That there are are all of these smaller presses, um, you know, Undertow, Word Horde, PS. Um, who are doing the good work and and who are helping to keep things in print, to bring things to print, to keep things uh, in print. Valancourt is bringing all kinds of things back to print. And I think all of that is creating a sort of a different, you know, the, the particular environment of, of this time, which is different from the 80s. You know, in, in, the, in the 80s, you could certainly find um, a lot of things in the bookstore, but a lot of what you, you went looking for, uh, you, you had to find in the used bookstore uh, or, or get a special order or something like that from. Uh, now it's, it's a lot easier to find uh, an electronic edition of something if, if, the, if the print edition is too expensive. Um, if you're not interested in, in a collector's edition, you just want to read whatever the writer wrote. That uh, that has, fortunately, to my mind, uh, become easier to do. It's still not 100%. There are still things that are difficult to, to track down. But um, so I, I, I think that, that moving ahead, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic. I mean, my agent's a little nervous. Um, she's like, how long is this horror thing going to last? Um, I, I heard once one of my editors said that they, they thought that, you know, horror does well when everything is just a mess. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, you know, well, if that's the case, you know, my, my my future's secure, you know. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's why the everybody everything's so happy, a mess. helpful. You know, everybody is knows that we have to help each other because the people who are meant to be helping us aren't helping us anymore. And you know, talking about films, um, you know, in this heyday of horror, or this golden age of horror we seem to be in at the moment, um, I don't. I, I mean, I'm quite, I see films and, and literature, you know, the same, but separate in terms of sure. how 
how the public engages with them because teenagers and a bank holiday will go and see any kind of horror film or whatever and it's great and it wasn't until things like the lighthouse or um midsummer and all the a24 films and all the slightly more uh, thoughtful horrors have started to get you know the good better reviews in the telegraph or the uh, independence or the new york post or whatever um, New York Post, New York Times, <laughs> Washington Post. Yeah, all of them, the New York Post, New York Times. Yeah. Oh, okay. And um, whereas what I've noticed is with it, within literature, it there seems to be a, a, a boom and people who are writing, or maybe it's just, I mean, I, I mean, to bring up Twitter, it's a shame because Twitter has just died a death for me. I just curated such a good list for my tweet, for my um, Twitter yeah, account, too. and now it's just unusable. And I think part of it is it democratized a certain amount of the publishing and writing industry. So we were able to deal with each other. So, for example, uh, Ellen Datlow did an AMA uh, a year ago or so on um, Reddit. And it was incredibly helpful for me. I mean, I would just I just moaned because I said I not moaned, but I was I wanted to know about short stories and novellas and stuff because I struggle with word count. And I they're too long to be short stories or too short to be novellas and this is after proper edits and stuff and i said is there a i was talking about whether there's a market and she said yeah just carry on and then i heard you on the was it talking scared podcast or another one and you were talking about um submit from the top down yes you know aim absolutely, from the top absolutely. down yeah yeah um and i think the internet and globalization all the stuff that's happened over the last 20 odd years have made it so much easier to become a writer but it's also um, made it so much more difficult in terms of volume, slush readers having to get through a billion instead of a million or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, I just yes. and the general quality is probably better as well. Yeah, for submissions. Well, I don't know. I mean, I I'm sure there's a load of crud out there as well, but I'm, the, the, the but it just seems general submission because of that proliferation of knowledge and information that's out and community. But it just seems to be both. You know, the rising be, tide is raising all the ships. It seems to be focused towards horror, though, instead of other genre fiction. Like, there's always been a support for fantasy. Um, but it just seems to be a lot. You know, I've moaned over the last 10 years on Crons. Oh, I'm the only one that likes horror. Nobody talks about horror but me. And it's changed. It's changing. I mean, I don't. I know there's still massive science fiction and fantasy fans and stuff, and there's crossover and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I do feel myself with, well, I've told you this, Dan, you know, I feel a lot more around my tribe these days than I used to even two years ago, you know. Um, and the book we're talking about, like, when did The Fisherman come out? I think I read it in 2016, 2017. Yeah, so, it, was, it was 2016 it was published. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, you know, that's quite a long time ago. Um, and, and I noticed then horror was getting a more, a bigger, you know, slice of the pie, as it were. So sorry, Dan. I has finished that thought. What were you saying? No, no, um, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I was thinking. I was <laughs> going back to the. I was thinking about the golden age question again. Um, the idea that you know things are going wrong. That, that I think that works to a certain extent because you need that. Or oh, horror works very well when it's operating at a cosmic level, and and there's whole scale collapse that's going on. But equally, it it tends to work at its best when it distills that narrative down into something that's happening to the individual. We could talk about the fishermen just as an example of that, because there's something that's vast 
and potentially apocalyptic out there just beyond the, the, the beach, the shoreline, which the fisherman is anchoring to the shore. But it's distilled down into the very personal narrative of the two characters, but of, of Abe and Dan. Uh, and what, I don't think one works without the other. So even when you have disaster movies, whether it's, you know, 2012 or Towering Inferno or whatever it is, Poseidon Adventure, the desire or Deep Impact, that's another good one, actually. Because the, the, the narrative is, is vast and unknowable, but it's distilled through individual characters and their traumas and their individual decisions as well. So I, I, it may be as banal a thing as it's just... You know, cycles of fashion and and horror is in because it's in because I don't think the themes uh, are any different. There, there's always an apocalypse on the horizon. You could always make a case for something is out there and it's going to get you. That's what uh, Taddy. When we had Taddy Thompson on, I don't know if you've read any of his stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you should read his book, Jackdaw. Oh, God. <laughs> the most horrific. phenomenal. But he was saying horrific. that horror operates. One, one of the, you know, we don't say there are rules, but he said one of the sort of conventions that makes horror tick is that there has to be some sort of palpable physical threat or at least some sense of a physical threat. So something is out um, to get you. Something is out to cause you danger. And... That's always there. You can always make a case that there's something out in the background, whether it's political, whether it's environmental, whether it's aliens, whatever. There's something that can physically drag you down. Uh, and, and this is a sort of ham-fisted segue, but this is why water works so well as a theme running through horror. Maybe we should start talking about horror, because uh, sorry, the, the water as the theme certainly in your writing definitely is there and yours definitely <laughs> both of you uh because there's the un there's the the sense of the underworld if we go way back like to the story of jonah he goes down and he's gobbled up by the whale so even when things are going really really wrong for jonah there's something that's even below the bottom of the sea and that's the belly of the whale so he has to go deep into the underworld in order to be revivified and spat back out onto land and all of these things like jaws and what were the, the things that you were mentioning john earlier so that the meg the deep blue sea the shark narrative the right. whale moby dick there's there's always something out there the leviathan that is going to drag you down and take you not just into the water but into the underworld yeah i think that's the 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 sea um man um, I, I've told this story like so many times and yet it still kind of remains for me just just um, a, a touchstone. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, my wife and I took our son uh, for a, a, to stay with some friends on, on Cape Cod. Uh, we went to a beach, lovely, lovely beach. The tide was out when we were there. And what that meant was that the, um, the, the water was maybe about waist deep for a quarter mile, half a mile, something like that. And so I'm just wading out into the water and I'm enjoying myself. Um, and I can hear the, you know, the beach getting voices getting further and further away. And, um, at a certain point, these, the, this school of, of large fish, uh, uh, sea bass, I think about three feet long, uh, each, they, they, they zoom past me and, and it was sort of startling, but I was also like, Oh, cool. Look at them. They're so beautiful, you know, but then I was like, wait, why are they here? 
<laughs> what's chasing them, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and, you know, I turn around and I'm trying to make my way back to shore, but of course you can't because the ocean is, you know, you, you can't go fast. You can't run. Um, and, um, and, and that's the thing about the ocean, right? Is, is that it turns so quickly. Um, and I mean, there's a sort of tidal image there, I, I, I guess, or a tidal metaphor at work there, but, but it, it, it just, it, it can turn so quickly from, um, pleasant and lovely to, oh my God, you know, there's the shark fin in the water or something like that. Um, and I, I think that the, um, so much of the life that we associate with the, with the sea is it's, it's different in these in these profound kinds of ways i mean it's one of the reasons i think we're all obsessed with with things like like whales and dolphins and such because they they're mammals they see seals you know they they it's something that we can relate to whereas a shark or sharks you know i i, I mean i gather that some species of shark can behave almost like dogs um, or something more along those lines, but just the way that thing looks with all the teeth and the dead eyes and all this, even my description, dead eyes, you know, um, it, it, it just, it, it, and let alone an octopus. I mean, so I, I think that, um, I, I think that there's something about that life that just feels on some kind of visceral level so different. And I know that there are plenty of people who would say, no, I love octopi. I, I love, uh, I love sharks. That's, that's terrific, you know, like, like, but I'm just for me personally. And I, I think the, the thought of being um, in an environment in which you cannot really survive for very long, you know, there, there's nobody who's going to go uh, relocate to the sea. Even if you live underwater, it has to be in this this very carefully constructed environment that will allow you to survive. You know, the, the environment itself will just kill you, like space. Right, it's, it's right, exactly. Like, like that, exactly. The, the environment is so hostile that there's no way. I, I, I think the thing with the shark as well is is its 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 sheer antiquity. You know, it was around. It predated many of the dinosaurs. It's still around. It will probably be hanging around long after we've shuffled off as well. Yeah, but aren't they a bit boring? What, sharks? Yeah, like compared to... Even the Meg. Well, yeah, but... I'm just thinking, comparing Jaws, for example, and this is... I know Jaws is sacrosanct, and I love the film. But but comparing Jaws to the Leviathan in The Fisherman... Oh, by the way, listeners, sorry, we're doing spoilers. Um... (laughs) You know, I read the fisherman. Everybody. Yeah, read the fisherman before you listen to what we've just said. Um, I, in my mind, I was seeing this sort of, do you know what Dunkleosteus is, or or coelacanth kind of fish, yeah, 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 historic yeah. fish. You know, and that's far. I remember when I was a child, we in the UK. I don't know if we had them in the state. If you have them in the states, but we have this collection of books called Ladybird books, and there were all everything from fairy tales to how the plane works, or. I- you know, I've seen them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there was I had one and uh, it was dinosaurs and it had uh, a picture of this fish in called Dunkleosteus and it was a huge fish with this armoured face with these weird almost not fangs as teeth but almost like bone that came and it just yeah, yeah. terrified me as a child. It, you know, really, you know, when you have those um, intri- those memories that stay as a, as a almost cellular trauma from something you've read as a kid and... um. And when I read The Fisherman, that was what I was seeing, was this unimaginable, without sounding too Lovecraftian, uh, unimaginable 
massive fish. I didn't think too much in terms of, say, a shark or I'm trying to think of another, another, I, you know, I, 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 yeah, it, it's funny when, when I was reading that scene where you, you, you encounter the Leviathan for the first time, bobbing out there on the horizon. Um, it's, it, it's it's good writing. It's great writing because it's almost like my mind didn't want to identify it. It it wanted my mind wanted for it to remain so vast that it actually was uncategorizable, and then it remained. The thing that I always, uh, I when I read Moby Dick at university, and I've read Moby Dick a few times since then. It's one of my favorites. I always interpreted that I mean, the, the the whale is obviously the, the symbol. Is the, is the whale and the whale is the symbol. And what does it mean? What does the symbol right. represent? What is the? I always interpreted Moby Dick as a blank canvas, just yeah. a vast sheet of nothingness. And you can project onto it whatever your own phobias, neuroses, psychoses, traumas, obsessions, which is what Ahab does. He projects everything that is wrong and rotten within himself onto the whale. And the Leviathan in Fisherman is... Is like that, but more than it's too big for just one person. It's like a, a, a black canvas that the entire community and its history is all projected on. From the the grief of the two, uh, the two protagonists, Abe and Dan. Uh, just as a, a quick break, see Abe and Dan. They're they're widowers. They've lost their families, and they they bond over over their grief, but also a shared passion for fishing. And they go to the Catskills, is that's how it's pronounced? Mm-hmm. Catskills yep, in is. upstate New York. And they hear about a, a river called Dutchman's Creek, which flows out of the local reservoir. The, is it the Ashotok? Ashokan. Ashokan Reservoir. Ashokan Reservoir, which promises good fishing, but they find more than they bargain for, obviously. Uh, and that's what I, I, I found that the, the Leviathan is... is this vast blank canvas, almost like a black hole. You know, it sucks everything in. It sucks every, all the trauma of, and the history of the of the community, not just of the two men. I'm going to go back to something you said earlier about this this constant switcheroo, this gothic uh, exchange that happens between uh, the United States and, and Canada as oh, well, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and the UK and. In New England, particularly, there are so many so many towns that retain old English fishing towns and fishing cities names. So there's a Truro, there's a Plymouth, there's, there are a few Bristol's. There's one in Massachusetts. There's one in Maryland, I think. And the the the, 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 cent- the center section of the fishermen, which is so dependent on the immigrant story, it's almost reinforcing that fact that the fish itself is sucking all of the history from the old world so that even though they've escaped the old world physically everything all of their history is dragged along with it the magic the grief the desperation and it's all represented in this malevolent fish because the fish can always drag you under that's what it represents that's really brilliant yeah that's (laughs) (laughs) that makes me that makes me sound much much smarter than i think i am but i uh look we 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 We've spoken to a lot of writers and we've come to the conclusion that most writers know what they're going on about. They put it together. I feel that my writing is smarter than I am. You know, like, 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 like so there are, there were times when, um, that there are times when I will reread something I wrote and I'll think, 
oh my God, look at that. There's that word in the very beginning. Oh, that's so, you know, that that's so suggestive vis-a-vis what comes after. And and I have no memory, no conscious memory of having done that. But it's there, you know, and 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 so I I do believe um and and it's not it sounds all sort of mystical and I, I don't really mean it to sound that way, but I, I think that you sort of train your creative consciousness or unconsciousness or or whatever that liminal state is. I think you train it in certain ways through through the writing that you do, through the reading mm. that you do, through the kind of yeah. thinking that you you do, so that those kinds of you can call them happy accidents or or it's just that you're maybe not aware that you're doing that because what you're thinking about what what seems to be foremost in your mind is ah, uh, you know I gotta I gotta get this done by eleven o'clock because I have to go do something. But you're just below the surface. Your brain is like, that's great. That's terrific. In the meantime, let's keep putting this this thing together. Well, Bean, Bean always says that it's like when, when it's going right and you know when it's going right because it's just flow. It's just You're just in that state. And he calls it the download. So it's like you plonk the antenna on your head and you just it's just beaming down from, yeah, yeah. through yeah, your yeah, head yeah, yeah, yeah. and on onto the page. And I, But I think you can, you can train yourself to do that. And the way you do it is by obviously writing. As, the more you do, the better you get. But also the reading. So the, yes, more, the more widely that you're read, the more likely that you're able to to pick on these, like you said, these subconscious things that are in you. They're in you. You don't know that they're in you, but and then they pour out on the page. The, a, a quote I, I sometimes go back to is um, Umberto Eco. He wrote an, ex, an essay called The Intertextuality of Texts. I, I mention this all the time. And it, it's the, the gist of it was that every text that's ever been written is always referencing every other text that's ever been written. And I thought, well, at the first time I read that, I thought it was nonsense. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, wow, that's brilliant. Because it's true. Because the conduit is the writer, the writer and the reader. Yes. And because of the writer and the reader, you can make an infinite amount of associations between anything. It's like hyperlinks. You know, you're just hyperlinking every book that's ever been created. Yeah, some Bar- some of it consciously and some of it unconsciously. It's yeah, brilliant. Ian Forrester has that um, that image of of all the writers who have ever written all writing in the same room at the same time. And yes, as as you know, as as a uh, a literary a trained literary critic, um, that there's a part of me that says, no, 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 come on, there's chronology, all this kind of stuff. You know, this mm. person came before that person, um, and yet. It does often seem that way. It, it does often seem, um, you know, Borges has the um, uh, what a story slash essay where he talks about the way that the influence can sometimes seem to flow backwards so that you're reading, you know, Stephen King and, and you're like, my God, it's amazing how much of Stephen King there is in H.P. Lovecraft or, or something like that, you know, that, that you... It, it almost seems as if that that tide flows out the other the other way and then flows and then maybe flows back in again and i i think um for the for the reader there's um that that doesn't necessarily need to be policed um it it it's not to say you know can you can you necessarily um uh, always support that argument uh in some i don't know what academic conference context but but i don't know that that's that important um does it work for you does it help to enrich the text that you're reading does it help to um uh yeah to enrich your own experience of the text then uh then good i read um there was an article in guardian 
week or two ago, and I forget who it was. Um, it might have been Zoe Williams. And she made the observation that when she first watched Citizen Kane, her first thought was, oh, this is a lot like that Rosebud episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's that's it. That's exactly that's exactly how I'm it works. Always up for a good Simpsons reference. There were there's far too much of the Simpsons. Like where like German could be is just the Simpsons. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not die Bart die. It's the Bart. Right, exactly. No one German could possibly do anything evil. <laughs> well, I'm going to step back from this conversation because I don't think I've ever seen any Simpsons. <gasps> wow. I know. I not, must even tree, not even the Treehouse of Terror. No, and everybody tells me I would love them, but I the just... shinnings, yeah, yes, <laughs> and also sued, but just so I can join back in the conversation, I wanted to come back. I got cut off, by the way, so okay, I don't know. Then that's okay. No, no, carry on. <laughs> so if we just all be a bit more serious about horror, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, I am. Um, I, no, I um, I've lost my point now. It was something to do with the oh yes, the, the transatlantic link and and. Then also reading outside of your your wheelhouse. If I'm struggling with my writing, well, not if I'm struggling with my writing, but if I'm about to start a new story, whether it's a flash fiction piece or a short or a whatever, my go-to are people like Ian Forster or the you know my favorite classical authors, and that takes me out of this sort of horror, horror, horror thing, and you start to see about life and existential stuff, which I think horror deals with so much more effectively, and I think um. That happens a lot more now than used to. I said, I'm a horror fan. I'm just going to read horror. I'm high fantasy. It's just high fantasy. Sci-fi, just, you know, Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov. Whatever. I think that's, that's partly the, the people that you that you talk with as well, the people in our writing group. We sort of bounce off each other with different things. We all roughly like the same sort of genre stuff, but then we all wildly diverge in our own in our own way, and then we bring that to everybody else. So, you know, it, that doesn't surprise me. But I am the glue that holds us together, aren't I? <laughs> Despite your lack of Simpsons knowledge, yeah, yeah, right. horror, horror is the is the glue for every genre. Um, yes, I do watch Family Guy and those kind of stuff. I've just never seen any Simpsons, it's, and I was, it's too I, late. It's too late. Just yeah, it is know. actually too late. The one yeah. guest I wanted to impress. I'm persona non grata. Your classical writers would appreciate the irony. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I. I, I suppose I would I would come back to or, or expand on this this um what am I trying to say? I, I would take us back for a second to the the writers of the last twenty odd years, the the um who are now, you know, we're we're all in, in middle age, I suppose. One of the things I, I think that many of us have in common is that we were doing what uh Actually, what what I think King and and Straub and and Campbell were doing, which is to say, you know, they were taking the material uh, quite often of Lovecraft, but Lovecraft, Richard Matheson, what have you, and then they were kind of smashing that into uh, you know you think about Campbell and you think about okay, so there's obviously he talks about how profound an effect uh, Lovecraft had on him, but then he also talks about how profound an effect reading uh, Nabokov. And Graham Greene had on him, and a lot of the wordplay that you find in in Campbell's stories, uh, that's right out of Nabokov, and the, the sort of seedy environments that he loves to write about, right out of right out of Graham Greene. And in King's case, 
you had, you know, sort of Lovecraft and Richard Matheson smacking up against American naturalism, uh, people like Theodore Dreiser and Frank Norris, uh, or a crime writer like John D. MacDonald. And in Straub's case, you had uh, Lovecraft, but also uh, Walter de la Mer and, and uh, M.R. James, uh, Henry James, coming up against uh, the other Henry James, as it were. You know, there's the turn of the screw Henry James, and then there's uh, uh, what Maisie knew Henry James. Um, and, and also Iris Murdoch and, and people like that. And, and so you, you got these kinds of cross-pollinations and, and uh, grafting and all sorts of other agricultural terms. And I think that, that a lot of the writers uh, that I'm friendly with anyway wound up doing something similar so that a writer like Laird Barron is, is on the one hand firmly entrenched in um, a kind of pulp tradition that includes uh, Lovecraft, that in, includes Robert E. Howard, that includes uh, Roger Zelazny, but he's also entrenched in a tradition that includes Cormac McCarthy and uh, Dan Sean. And uh, yeah, someone like Noir. Tremblay is, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing, right, is that, you know, like, like any of these writers, I feel like you, you can look at them and you can, um, you can say, oh, well, yes, I recognize um, in, in Paul Tremblay's case, okay, he's read, you know, there's a lot of Stephen King in there, but then there's also a lot of stuff that comes from a, a lot of contemporary um, South American writers, a big fan of Roberto Bolaño, Roberto and Bologna, a, yeah, uh, yeah. a big fan of, uh, of Harukai Murakami. Um, and, and so I, I think that that's something else that, um, that has happened more and more and more. A, as you said, it's, it's not just love Stephen King so I'm I'm going to that's all I'm going to read and that's all I'm going to write and if if that's your thing that's totally fine I'm not I'm not judging that you may be able to to create something great that way I I feel though that you increase your chances of writing something more interesting for yourself as well as a writer you know let alone for your reader when you can take those different things and, and bring them into, into conversation. With, yeah, it, uh, with it's the point another. of intersection that makes things interesting. And, and all of these writers, yeah. like you, they all have their own points of intersections. And if you can, if you can combine that with something else, then that's, and I think, that's, yeah. that's where, that's what you're not, so you're not just producing a facsimile of something. that's Exactly. Come. Yeah. You're the one who creates, you, you see a connection that nobody else has made and you can, yeah, and, and that's that into, into that's, something. I, new I feel in. like like we're all as as human beings. We are that. That's I sort of think that's what we all are. We're all the intersections of all these different things that come together in this particular unique body. And boom, that's that's us. And I, um, you know, I, I suppose a more like a more practical example of this for somebody who's like, how do I do that? What are you even talking about? Um, uh, Kelly Link. Uh, likes to talk about how when she's watching uh, a movie or a TV show, and maybe it's starting to drag a little bit, she looks at the characters and she thinks, which one of these is a vampire? And then that becomes this little game that she plays with herself. And I, I think about that, you know, like, like, so you're watching the Brady Bunch, say, you know, classic of American <laughs> television or EastEnders or something, right? And you're like, which one of these people is a vampire? You know, and, and how, like, what is their secret life like outside of the confines of, of the, the, this particular narrative that, that we're seeing them in? And, and right there, I mean, so many, so many fascinating writing prompts and writing ideas sound ridiculous. You know, they, they just sound like, well, that's just silly. You know, it's like, that's just a joke. But 
take the, you know, if you stop for a second and you think, well, what if I took that joke seriously uh, or, or at least allowed that joke to blossom? And, and oh, okay. Uh, so I, I think that the cab driver is actually the vampire. He's, he's only, we only see him every now and again. Um, what is he up to? Then that opens up a whole, a whole world in, in which it's, uh, it's the Brady Bunch, but, and it's that world, but it's also this world in which there's a vampire driving a, a cab around, uh, whatever, Southern California. You mentioned, um, your contemporaries, you know, uh, Laird Barron, Paul Tremblay, Allison etc etc um and you said that more or less you're all of of an age with one another you're all in that sort of sort of mid 40s to mid 50s yeah. age bracket do you think that horror relies on having had a little bit of experience let's say of of doing life and having experienced maybe some trauma some ups and downs and understanding that yeah, there are things in the world that can get you, but also there are ways of making it through. I I think that um, writing in general benefits from age. Um, the writer John Scalzi a few years ago wrote what was for me, <laughs> me this marvelous blog post uh, on his whatever uh, site where he said that you know if, if you look at the the break break down the numbers and you'll find that most writers don't publish their first novel until they're in their 40s or 50s that the the romantic uh, and i mean that i guess in the, with a capital r you know myth of of the youthful you know keats who who writes a whole bunch of great poems and then mm. you know drops dead um or um you know keats and shelley and and uh, and even coleridge who kind of who kind of burns out you know in in his in his youth and and that's the that's the knock on wordsworth right is that Although he publishes the the he brings Even up the Lovecraft. preludes, yeah. Well, the thing with Lovecraft is Lovecraft dies. Yeah, you know, post, he, he's he's uh, 40, 47 when he 46, dies. Forty six, I think. Yeah, okay, maybe um, but um, so and, so and he died in the sort of the the the, the cliche uh, penury. Oh, absolutely, of, the starving the romantic, artist. Which, yeah. You know, the, the romantic starving artist, which, you know, there's nothing, if you read about Lovecraft's life, there's nothing romantic about it. No, no, he dies of, of stomach cancer from, uh, which seems to be an agonizing death from a, a, a lifelong poor diet uh, brought on yeah. by, yeah, by, by poverty. But I, I think that, that, that many people, um, many people look at the, the, the youthful success, the myth of the youthful success, and it's not, not a hundred percent a myth because there are people like F. F. Scott Fitzgerald or Hemingway, uh, or or Keats, you know, who um, who have youthful success, who have tremendous youthful success, and of course we look at that and we're like, oh my God, I can't, you know, I'm not youthful anymore. How am I going to do that? But the the fact is that those people who who had that success were often in in very specific situations, financially and socially and what have you, that allowed them to have that success. Um, I, I think that, um, these days it's much more likely that you're going to need a job. <laughs> you're going to, you know, yeah. you might, you might want to get an education. Uh, you, you need a job. Maybe you want to have family. Um, all of those things are going to take up decades of your, of your life. If you're, if you're, um, I, I mean, if you're, if you're going to be a, to my mind, a decent, responsible partner and parent and, and whatever, you know, you have to be available for your family. You can't just be like, all right, you're five now. Good. I'm done. 
you have to, you know, you have to remain uh, available to them. Um, and, and the same thing if, you know, if you want your, your, uh, relationship with your partner to continue, you have to remain in, in constant communication, constant dialogue with them. So all of those things mean that you could be, you could look up as it were in your 40. Uh, that's fine. That's not, you know, the, the, the one thing I think that the one benefit I think you, you get to being older is, is you learn the kind of value of persistence. Um, you, you, I, I think if there's a danger to when you're, you're young, a, a trap you can fall into when you're young, it's sort of impatience. It's, it's that feeling of, Oh my God, I haven't written a novel. I'm such a failure. Everybody hates me. Um, and, and I think that, um, when you, um, when you reach, you know, you, you, you get to be, um, even in your thirties, you start to realize, ah, that's not exactly true. Let me just, let me just try. Let me, let me just try to do what I can do. And I, I think that, um, I, I think that that, so for anybody who, um, man, for anybody who's young, that's great. That's terrific. You know, you got a lot ahead of you. Give it a shot. Don't give up. For anybody who's who's uh, middle aged or even older, I mean, Penelope Fitzgerald doesn't publish her first novel till she's in her sixties. Yeah, 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 and she still wins the Booker Prize. You know, <laughs> she still publishes. I can't remember what it is, like a dozen or fifteen books or or something like that. So I I don't think that it's ever. I don't think there's ever a too late point. Um, I uh, uh, probably that you you know someone someone in the audience right now was like hang on a second oh yes there's some exception you can think of okay that's great but for most people no you you just you just keep at it and yeah. um, and you keep getting better the more I, I think so I, I really do yeah. I when I started writing I was terrified when I really made the the effort I was terrified that I would run out of ideas I, I would read an interview with someone like Neil Gaiman. He would say, you know, I will never live long enough to write down all the ideas I have to write stories. And I would think, oh, my God, how does he do that? And what I realized is that the more I wrote, the more I found I could write. Now, I don't know if that I think that's true for a lot of writers, uh, maybe even the majority of writers. I, I don't know. I've actually never, never made a, a, a survey that way. But I've just found it for myself that that writing begets writing. And that writing, it begets ideas for for writing. There's um, this is jumping the gun. I know we were going to talk about this in the in the second half of the show too, but I'll just say that there's a, a marvelous book by Kate Wilhelm called Storyteller. Uh, she was a science fiction and mystery writer uh, from uh, the the latter half of the 20th century, and this is a book that, um, like speaking of Kelly Link, that Small Beer Press put out, and the book is a mix of of memoir and sort of writing exercises she was married uh, kate wilhelm to damon knight who created the clarion workshop and one of the things that uh, maybe the the one of the most profound lessons i feel i took from that was her comparison of your kind of creativity to a little dog your little dog brings you uh, a treat or brings you a toy excuse me, brings you a toy to play with and you have one of two choices, right? You can, you can either play with the, you can play with the, the dog or you can say, get out of here. And eventually if you keep that up, the dog will not come to you anymore. The dog will learn the lesson. All right. Just leave dad alone. In my case. Um, your creativity is like that too. If, if every time your creativity brings you an idea, 
your first thought is, no, that's a terrible idea. No, I could never do that, which is very much how I was when I was young. You know, oh, that's stupid. Now, come on. You immediately feel overwhelmed and defeated and whatever. Eventually, your creativity is like, okay, lesson learned. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to work that way. If your creativity brings you the idea of the vampire taxi driver and you're like, well, I don't know. I don't, I, that seems kind of silly, but, 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 but okay. How could we do that? How could we play with that? You may not write that story, but what you're training your, your kind of creativity to do is to bring you ideas is, Hey, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how, how silly it is. Oh, there's an octopus who's, who's bench pressing 400 pounds and he's, you know, he's part of the circus and, you know, um, okay, that's kind of odd. Let's, let's see what we can do with that. So, um, I, I think which, that, which is why short stories are, are such a great way of improving your chops when you're starting yeah, out. I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I also think there were, um, I, I know myself, I felt that like, oh, move from, I mean, I, I was always, uh, when, when I started, I've always written long and the first stories I started writing when I, when I really decided to embrace horror writing in my, in my early thirties were novelettes were, were that, that, too long for a short story, not long enough to be a novella. These days, if you write a novella, you get a shot at getting that published in, in any number of you know novella lines. And obviously, short stories, you, there's, there's a number of markets for them. Novelettes are a, a tricky business. Um, but I certainly had the idea that I would, you know, that, that the, the shorter things I was writing were preparation for the, for the novels uh, to come. And there, there is some truth to that. But I also think um, there are ways which you can do things in a short story. You, you'd be difficult to get away with in a novel. Um, the late Ian Banks did, did some crazy, you know, especially in his science fiction stuff. You know, he would write, what is it, the use of weapons where he's got two plots. One is going forward, one is going backward, and they meet at the, at the end of the book. Um, I, I, I would love to be able to write something like that. I think that's crazy, but I have a hard time imagining doing it as a novel. I could maybe, I feel like I, I could see that as a novel letter, you know, maybe a novel, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that, um, it's all, it's all good. All writing is good. You may not, I mean, you have to finish something, but if you start something and you're ah, you know, I just, I don't know what to do with this, put it away. It's it's totally come back to it. That that has happened to me more times than than um than I can count, really, where I've I've hit the I wrote the beginning of something, put it aside, and then years later came back to it and I was like, Oh, okay, I know where this goes now. Sometimes your mind I, I do think like that's where the the way your subconscious works or your unconscious, whatever. Um, I do think it's this this thing of levels where where things are constantly getting passed up and, and down. Um, and you know, the, the, the little beginning to something that I wrote a while ago, that's, that's hanging around somewhere in the middle and the, the fornits are working, on it. you know, Stephen King has that term for the little guys in your subconscious, the fornits are down there and they're working at it and they're trying some stuff out and, and, uh, or, or um, maybe it's like Homer Simpson to finish on a, a Simpsons. Um, <laughs> when, he, when he learns something new, it pushes something else out. <laughs> maybe I, it's your demon. The, the, well, the Fornets to me all look like, um, they all look like the minions in the minion movies. You know, they're all like blowing things up and they're all talking this little gibberish language. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that, um, I, I think that, you have to be forgiving of yourself as a writer. Um, I, I, I feel that there's, and I, I know that sounds awfully like touchy feely squishy, 
but i i think that the 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 notion that as writers we you know kill your darlings and and we have to be really harsh to each other and if 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 you give me a story to read i better make sure that i just tear the guts out of it um <laughs> no i mean sometimes yeah sometimes you have to say look i don't think this is working you know it it's it's much as i love simpsons fan fiction this is not working you know that's fine <laughs> like i think you can do that but i i also think um that that we just we don't do each other any favors by by tearing each other apart uh i think that there are ways to offer you can certainly be honest in your in your response well, what we found is that is when you're in a, a community you you quickly or maybe not quickly maybe it's actually it could be a long and drawn out affair with a bit of difficulty but you find the readers who suit you and yes. will give you the proper honest feedback and they'll tell you when you're on Definitely. the right track and they'll tell you that's not working that doesn't feel like it works for you rather and we 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 know a few people who will just trash everything and we know a few people who will say everything is wonderful which is not very useful either even right. as, as, as nice as it, as it is to hear so if you find the right person the right group of people that you can talk with honestly that's that's when you've got the sweet spot and you can then you you can retain you can talk about things in, in the right way and improve anyway that's it's super encouraging a lot of people that we that we uh that we have listening to the show they message us and say this is all very depressing hearing about how difficult it is and it's like, yeah it is difficult but that's very encouraging you know keep at it we like that so i think we'll figure it out right i think that is a good note on which to end the first half of the show we've gone well over the hour mark because we've been rabbiting away it's excellent uh let's take a break thank you john for joining us uh we'll take a few minutes and join you a little bit later on in the show Welcome back to Mars Radio 14, the third best radio station on the Martian Space Force broadcasting spectrum. My name is Captain Half Milk Carton, and I've been joined in the studio by Lieutenant Bungalow, who has just got back from a survey of outer space and, or so he tells me, has found the essence of reality behind the magic of life. Is that right, Bungalow? Yes, it is half milk cotton. Right. Absolutely. Good. Yes, very good. Let me tell you. Okay. Right. I just said that. I know you did have milk cotton, and it's true. I did find the core essence of life. Which was? Oh, many, many things. Ooh. Many, many diverse and varied things. Well, I mean, you know, no, no, that's it's just one thing, actually. Right. Indeed, half milk cotton. Right, indeed. Give me strength. What is the thing you found? The thing that underpins existence. Magic. Magic. It took a trip around the universe to discover the magic behind life is magic. Well, yes. Well, I mean, and no. By the nine triangulars of Bongerlon, I'd get more sense out of an asteroid. Yes and no. Just pick one. Yes. 
course. Well, I mean, no. Wait. Uh... Well, there's no magic on Earth, so no. What do you mean there is no magic on Earth? What do they use? Logic. Logic? Exactly. Not this again. Can you give me an example of logic? Just so any of the folk tuning in won't have wasted their time completely. Sure. Of course, an example of logic. Half milk cart, listen to this. Do you own a frog Neptunian barracuda? Of course I do. You know I do. All senior officers in the Martian Space Force are presented with a fronged Neptunian barracuda by the head Bongerlon in acknowledgement of their importance. I have had mine for 82 planetary cycles. Yeah, so it follows that you must be a very wise Martian to have become a captain in the Martian Space Force and have earned a fronged Neptunian barracuda. Uh, do you keep it in a tank of water, half milk cart? No, I keep it in the shed halfway up Olympus Mons. Of course I keep it in a tank. It's a fish. An enormous sea creature over 19 oblong cumatons in length. Where else do you think I'd have it? I mean, it's not in the studio with us now, is it? No, nope, it is not half milk cart. So, with you being a very wise Martian, and a captain, ooh, a captain in the Martian Space Force with an enormous fish and an enormous tank of water. Well, you must be a wealthy Martian. Yes? So, a very wise Martian and a wealthy captain in the Martian Space Force with an enormous fish and an enormous tank of water on good wages. You must have a good job. Yes. And I'd say as a very wise Martian and a captain in the Martian space world with an enormous fish, an enormous tank of water on good wages, with a good job. Now, I'd say you probably work for a big, important organization. An organization like the Martian space world. In fact, I'd say you definitely work for the Martian Space Force and are probably an important person in that force. Probably an officer. In fact, using logic, I can say with absolute certainty that you are a captain in the Martian Space Force. Ta! Right, Bungalow. Thanks for that. Do you mind if I try? Try what, half milk card? Using logic. Yeah, of course, half milk card. Right, then let me ask you this, Lieutenant Bungalow. Do you own a fronged Neptunian barracuda? No. Then, Bungalow, you are an idiot. Hello and welcome again to the Judge's Corner with me, Damaris Brown. Usually in these talks, I discuss legal matters which we writers need to know about or which we could use in our stories. But occasionally I simply witter on about a subject with legal connotations which is in the news, or is relevant to the specific Kronzcast. This month is one of the latter, since the conversation with John Langan is about his novel The Fisherman, what better time to look at the law relating to fishing? Though, spoiler alert, I'm talking mainly about England, not fishing in the waters of upstate New York, and while there's plenty of natural history, there's absolutely no supernatural horror. Fish were important throughout medieval Europe, 
not least because the Catholic Church required people to refrain from eating meat on fast days, not limited to Fridays and the 40 days of Lent. Estimates vary, but altogether the prohibition covered between one-third and one-half of the year, when meat was forbidden but fish was not. Though towards the end of the Middle Ages, fish pretty much included anything that lived in or on water, including barnacle geese, which were thought to hatch from barnacles, so there's a certain logic to that, as well as puffins and beavers, which, doubtless much to your surprise, weren't believed to be barnacle-related. The importance of fishing in England is shown as early as the Doomsday Book of 1086, as well as detailing farms, mills, livestock, slaves and so on, all with their value. It also lists hundreds of fisheries, mostly freshwater, but also a number on tidal rivers and estuaries, including the Thames. More intriguingly, one location in York is said to have been a fish processing plant, though I've not been able to find the entry myself to verify the detail. But since there must have been numerous places around the country where fish, such as herring, would have been dried, salted, pickled or smoked, it's possible this York venue was on a semi-industrial scale. Even before Doomsday, in the 10th century laws of Wales, there's implicit recognition of fishing's value in one law. If a person spread a net upon his river or upon the sea, and geese or other animals get entangled in the net, become wounded and die from it, the owner of the net is not to pay any compensation for any one of them. If a beast or any other animal get entangled in the net, break it and make its escape, the owner of the net must be indemnified for the injury, because he had a right to spread his net. So, the fishman's net is clearly considered more important and valuable than someone else's beast. And this is a time when a goose was valued at a penny, a gander double that, with other livestock much more. Even a good mouse-killing cat was valued at fourpence. Welsh laws also dealt with agreements and liabilities over fishing. Whoever wishes to go a-fishing and start a fish and pursue him, and, in the pursuit, the fish enter another person's net, the law has enacted that the first is entitled to him. If persons be fishing, and whilst engaged in it, others come to catch fish with them and desire a share of the fish, they have a right to a share, unless the fish be up on the rod or the hooks. If they be thus fixed, they can demand nothing. Though that unless proviso of the last rule seems to carry an exception in the case of salmon, one of the three so-called common hunts under the hunting laws. Salmon is called a common hunt because when they are taken in a net or with a fish spear or in any other manner, if any person whatever come up before they are divided, he is entitled to an equal share of them with the person who caught them, if it be in common water. I've not found a definition of common water, but this clause implies a difference between fishing on, say, a major river on the one hand, and a watercourse on someone's land on the other. Certainly this divide between waters held in common and those separately owned was recognised in England in the post-conquest period, though just as common use of land increasingly gave way to private property rights, so ownership by individuals superseded the common of fishery shared rights in freshwater rivers, 
though tidal waters which belonged to the crown remained largely open to all. Various methods of catching fish were used throughout the medieval period, but the most visible in legal documents are the wicker fish traps which are referenced in charters from the 8th century. Then around 1180, a new, far more substantial trap appears, and in 1215 this type is specifically raised in Magna Carta, where Clause 33 states, All fish weirs are in future to be entirely removed from the Thames and the Medway, and throughout the whole of England, except on the sea coast. We tend to think of Magna Carta as a reaction to the oppressive tyranny of King John, but it's hardly likely that he and his henchmen have been loading English rivers with fishweirs for their own personal advantage, thereby upsetting the barons. Rather, these larger, heavier traps were impediments to navigation and therefore to river-borne commerce, and the clause was probably added at the behest of London merchants who wanted a freely navigable Thames. But the weirs were undoubtedly also a problem elsewhere, hence the prohibition being extended across the whole country. The exemption of coastal fish weirs likely arises from the fact that they were less of a hindrance to boats and trade. Magna Carta attaches no penalty to the continued use or construction of river weirs, and it's unlikely to have proved very effective. Certainly this wasn't the first attempt to control the weirs, nor indeed their predecessors. Pre-conquest, Edward the Confessor had ordered the destruction of fisheries blocking the flow of the Thames. In 1197, John's predecessor, Richard I, had granted London a charter ordering the removal of all fish weirs on the river when they were described as detrimental to the whole realm. And two years later, John repeated the charter, extending the ban to the Medway, with a hefty £10 penalty for anyone constructing a new weir. A few years after that, the Archbishop of Canterbury excommunicated those responsible for the fish weirs, a serious penalty for the devout, yet evidently the problems persisted, since in 1237 an order was made for some 30 weirs to be removed and their owners to be arrested, and over 150 years later, in 1393, the mayor and aldermen of London were once again petitioning the king about the construction of weirs and other engines. It's perhaps likely that the Thames and Medway weirs were initially installed, or at least encouraged, by the city's fish sellers, who had formed a guild by the 1150s. Their importance was recognised in 1272, when the guild was formally incorporated as the Worshipful Company of Fishmongers, one of the first of the great 12 livery companies in London. Regulations applied by the company referred to mullets, whitings, sprats, mackerel, rays, congers, dories, turbot, dabs, whelks, porpoises, oysters, salmon, cod, haddock, herrings, eels, mussels and sturgeon, many of which may well have been caught in the Thames itself, though sturgeon was rare and reserved for the monarch. The issue of the weirs is an early example of fishing, despite its importance in feeding a growing population, coming into conflict with other interests. That conflict between two competing goals wasn't the last, and in fact the weirs themselves were a problem not merely for river trade routes. The 1393 petition about the weirs on the Thames and Medway referred to the overfishing of fry and destruction of fish stocks, and a similar complaint in 1402 was that the weirs were destroying the young fry of fish, 
presumably because any gaps were too small, with the result that fish become wasted and thus given to swine to eat, contrary to the pleasure of God and a great damage to the king and his people. Overfishing and depletion of stocks wasn't only an English problem, though. Sicily had to bring in fishing regulations in 1231, and in 1289 Philip IV of France fulminated against the evil of fishers, who had left the rivers empty, thereby increasing prices and creating public hardship, and he brought in the first fishery ordinances. More French legislation followed into the 14th century, requiring nets to have larger meshes to ensure young fish could escape, forming the basis for continued lawmaking over the next several centuries. In England, too, efforts continued to try to protect young fish, including in 1533 an Act Against Killing of Young Spawn or Fry of Eels and Salmon, with a close season for elvers, young eels, from February to July. Close seasons for both young and adult salmon had been enacted in England some 250 years before that, with the 1285 Salmon Preservation Act, which was itself 250 years later than a similar enactment protecting salmon in Scotland. Under the 1285 law, penalties for a first offence included the destruction of nets, for a second, three months in prison, and for a third offence, as their trespass increaseth, so shall the punishment, though I can't discover what that actually entailed. Whatever the penalties set out in the Henrician 1533 Act, they didn't seem to work, since merely 25 years later, in 1558, the first year of Elizabeth's reign, another statute was enacted, for the preservation of spawn and fry of fish, because, once more, young eel and salmon, and this time also pike, were being caught in quantity. Insomuch that in diverse places they feed swine and dogs with the fry and spawn of fish, and otherwise, lamentable and horrible to be reported, destroy the same to the great hindrance and decay of the commonwealth. Among other provisions, this act imposed size limits on certain fish, so for instance, no pike under 10 inches could be taken, or trout under 8 inches. Elizabeth's chief minister, Sir William Cecil, was behind this enactment, as well as a far more controversial clause in the 1563 Navigation Act, the compulsory eating of fish on Wednesdays, what became known as political Lent. From a committed Protestant in the midst of the Elizabethan religious settlement, this seems at first sight a strangely popish requirement. But it was devised for very practical reasons. The need to build up the English navy. The decay of the fleet arising, Cecil believed, from a declining fishing through lower demand, even though the Catholic fish days hadn't been formally abolished. As a result, the act specifically required sea fish to be eaten on the Wednesdays, not freshwater fish. Cecil's laws might have helped our navy, but once again the fish preservation measures proved less successful. A combination of ignorance, want, greed and insufficient enforcement meant further legislation was required in the 17th and 18th centuries – the reign of George III alone generating 17 enactments relating to fish and fisheries, 
including yet another attempt specifically to protect young fish in 1760 with an act for the better preservation of the spawn, brood and fry of fish and for preventing the sale of small and unsizable fish and fish out of season. With the coming of the Industrial Revolution and a burgeoning population, inland fisheries came under even greater threat. An 1825 report on salmon fisheries prepared by a parliamentary select committee heard evidence that salmon were still being destroyed in great numbers despite attempts to preserve stocks. By now, industrial pollution was taking its toll on the rivers. Evidence heard by a commission investigating London's water supply in 1827 pointed the blame at the gas industry for a catastrophic decline in the Thames fishery. Salmon catches that used to be 10,000 a year had disappeared completely. From the middle of the 19th century, there was yet another blizzard of legislation to try to protect fish, including the 1877 Fisheries Dynamite Act. Yep, they needed an act to prohibit the use of dynamite or other explosives for the purpose of catching or destroying fish in public fisheries. But while worthy in themselves, measures promulgated for conservation purposes also created disputes, sometimes even public unrest, with the 1873 Salmon Fisheries Act leading to what has been called the Victorian Elva Wars, as the close season laid down for catching eels or the fry of eels meant the virtual end of legal elva fishing. Between 1874 and 1876, dozens of men in Gloucestershire were convicted, some sentenced to fines of 10 shillings, virtually a labourer's weekly wage, with court costs much the same, some even suffering 14 days hard labour. These were men employed at Gloucester docks who'd been laid off for the season and for whom overfishing meant survival, both food and much-needed income. In the end, public sympathy and intervention by politicians brought about a change in the law, allowing for a limited period of overfishing. As ever, a compromise had to be reached between the needs of the fishermen and of the fish, a balancing act which continues to this day. Fishing for sport, as opposed to need or for income, has been around since at least the Middle Ages. Nowadays, to fish with rod and line on inland waterways requires a licence plus permission from the fishing rights owner. Originally, the person who owned land along a river or watercourse had the virtually untrammeled right to fish in their section up to the midpoint of the waterway. But fishing rights can be valuable and many have been sold or leased, for instance to fishing clubs, so they're now completely separate from the riparian property and could be formally registered. In England, though, regulations still maintain a distinction between tidal and non-tidal waters, and also between freshwater fish and sea fish. Poaching of fish from private land has been a crime since at least 1539, with the Henrician Act that fishing in any several pond or moat with intent to steal fish out of the same is felony. And under Elizabeth, it carried a punishment of up to three months in prison. But matters appeared so grave by 1765 that poachers then faced being punished by transportation to the colonies for seven years. Poaching remains illegal, nowadays under the 1968 Theft Act, which states that 
An offence is committed when a person unlawfully takes or destroys or attempts to take or destroy any fish in water which is private property or in which there is any private right of fishery. But while ordinary theft requires an intention to permanently deprive the owner of the stolen property, that isn't necessary in the case of fish. A 1964 decision expressly confirmed that taking does not include an element of asportation, that is, physically removing or carrying something away. It means to lay hands upon, to grasp, to seize or to capture. So using a keep net or engaging in catch and release fishing would still be an offence, as would just sitting there hoping to catch a fish, since that comes under the attempt clause. Interestingly enough, before the wording of the Act was changed in 2009, nighttime poaching received a higher penalty than fish theft in the day, for up to three months in prison for a second offence. Although most legislation prior to the 20th century related to inland waterways, sea fishing cropped up from time to time. In the late 13th century, Edward I tried to protect the conger eel around the Channel Islands, by requiring the more abundant mackerel to be caught instead. And in 1605, under James I and VI, Parliament passed an act for the better preservation of sea fish. Then in 1714, we have the gloriously named Act for the Better Preventing Fresh Fish Taken by Foreigners Being Imported into This Kingdom, and for the Preservation of the Fry Fish and for the giving leave to import lobsters and turbots in foreign bottoms, and for the better preservation of salmon within several rivers in that part of this kingdom called England, which, as that long title indicates, mixed preservation of inland stocks with the problem of impertinent foreigners taking British fish in British waters and then having the damnable cheek to sell them back to us. This wasn't the first occasion that English noses were put out of joint by foreign fishermen. In the late 14th century, the number of foreigners, particularly Spanish, fishing in Ireland's Atlantic fisheries caused alarm, which continued through the early 15th century. And in 1465, they were required to obtain licences, with taxes imposed on their boats. Dutch herring buses, markedly more successful than their English counterparts, also caused consternation in the 16th century, with William Cecil thinking it intolerable to allow the herrings and other sea fish taken upon our coast to be brought and sold by strangers into the ports of the realm. Not only civic pride was at stake, but public finances. In 1652, it was said that there was pay to the state for custom of herring and other salt fish above 300 thousand pounds in one year. Such fishing spats have continued since, as we've seen in recent years, not least the Cod Wars from 1958 to 76, and the current ructions following Brexit, and exactly who can fish in our national waters. All in all, it's very much a fishy business. You've been listening to the first half of our conversation with John Langan, brought to you by Dan Jones and Christopher B. Additional content was provided by Brian Sexton, Jay Starlipper and Damaris Brown. 
Join us next time for the continuation of our conversation with John, where we'll be discussing more about modern horror. We'll be getting an update.